The Shawnee, a Native American tribe, tells a tale of Brother Crow and Brother Buffalo, which imparts the wisdom of balance to not only hunt the buffalo when it's necessary for food and skins, and remember that each creature is also our brother and sister. Tales like this one are not uncommon in many indigenous cultures around the world. Through an illustrative story set in nature, they transmit the ethical, epistemological, and metaphysical beliefs of the tribe from one generation to the next on topics such as virtue and vice, creation and purpose, life, death, and what comes after. Yet the collective body of knowledge and beliefs of such tribes are not considered philosophy, but are rather placed in an adjacent and loosely defined category called wisdom traditions. And this label is hardly reserved for indigenous knowledge systems. Buddhism, Humanism, Taoism, Transcendentalism, Confucianism, and Quakerism have all been called wisdom traditions by some. In what way do wisdom traditions differ from philosophy? Are they considered lesser than, or are they on equal ground but utilize different ways of knowing? Is the term subversively pejorative, or does its separate status identify something uniquely different and profoundly important? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Open Door Philosophy. I'm Andrew Graziano. And I'm Derek Parsons. And I'm Taylor Jones. And today, somewhat as an extension of the previous episode, we're going to discuss wisdom traditions, what they are, how they function, and what purpose they play. But first, how are y'all doing? I think you guys always go first. It's been a while since I've gone first. I'll go first. How's Mr. Parsons? Mr. Parsons is overwhelmed. Yes, it's true. I was out last week for a couple days because I was sick, and now I'm behind, and I've spent most of the weekend doing more work stuff, just trying to catch up. Lots of essays, letters of recommendation, uh, the death of me, and uh, and many other things. So anyway, but you know, everything is good. Everything's good. It's finally cooling down. We got a cool front. Today, Today's high is only 97. Woo! It's fall, y'all. <laughs> it's fall. <laughs> get your get your pumpkin spice lattes and sweaters out. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I'm good. How are you, Taylor? Oh, I'm good, but also so busy. It's, mm. I guess, next week is week four of the semester when we're recording this. So it's like the first really busy week where I have like a lot of school stuff going on and like outside stuff like advising and i have an interview on monday for a job on campus great Mm. good luck yep very exciting thank you um so yeah just a lot going on but good overall how are you andrew i am doing about as well as i can be i think like this is probably the happiest i've ever been on an episode of open door philosophy uh so so that's uh, well probably not but you know Yesterday, my my rice owls pulled off a big win uh, against UH. So if if you know anything about college football, that's a big upset. Uh, And especially it was the Bayou Bucket, which is a big deal. I've watched them get crushed the past four years. Last year, I literally (laughs) last year we lost with one second left on the clock, Mm. and and Mm. so uh, it was a fantastic Mm. way to end the day. what else? The, the weather, that's absolutely perfect, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. so, so that was really good. And with school, that's, well, oh, I, I don't know if I talked about this yet, but I'm teaching. Mm-mm. 
I'm teaching, and next week we're on track, on schedule. Next week we're reading one of my favorite, favorite authors. Uh, I got to assign a short story, so I'm super excited. We're reading Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is a fantastic little eight-page short story that's absolutely revolting but amazing, and I'm so excited. <laughs> so it's, it's going great. Super good. Wow. Good Andrew, good. are you thriving right now? No. I will never say no, that word. This is the happiest you've... <laughs> you're not thriving? <laughs> I'm happy. Thriving. Uh, uh, or do, you, do you possess eudaimonia? <laughs> uh, we're getting there. You know, we're getting there. Maybe we're getting there. Maybe okay. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I have a question for y'all before we start. Have y'all tried yeah. these Starbucks drinks? The fall drinks? Yes. Okay. Have of you, oh, just any Starbucks drink? No, or? no, no. Like the they have fall a fall. Oh, oh. Yeah, they have a fall collection. I don't know if that's oh, the word. Uh, I'm not familiar with the fall collection as <gasps> it is called. Uh, but I, I have had a pumpkin spice latte. Mm. I think maybe twice in my life. Mm. Okay. I've never had the pumpkin spice latte, but I tr- I've had the. Well, you know, I can't get that drink because it's too basic, but. Uh, I've had this uh, pumpkin cold brew. I've had this pumpkin the pumpkin cold cream cold brew, and it's really good. So it's, good, that's my favorite. It's really good. So pumpkin mm-hmm. cream cold brew. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God, Try is this it. even coffee? What are the yeah. calories? Yeah, it's a lot of coffee. Uh, it's a yeah. lot of calories. It's like <laughs> all cold brew, and then the top is like a cold foam, like it's, a. It's very good. Almost like a not whipped cream, but like it's foamy and it has like the pumpkin spice in it so it's not sweet not super sweet it's only 250 calories you know mm. if i'm gonna have a cold brew i'm just gonna have a guinness because <laughs> it's the same color and it also has a nice foamy top yeah but after you drink the guinness you're gonna feel like bloated and uncomfortable on the cold brew like the, that thing revolutionizes your life. I, I don't know what they put in it. <laughs> like, it's like revolutionizes your it's, life. It's like makes I'm you have to try this. Yeah, you, I'm just like, a grumpy old man. I yeah. just like my black hot coffee. But every time I get coffee with Mr. Parsons, he gets a caramel latte because he he just <laughs> hey, asks hey, me what hey. I get, and I always get a caramel <laughs> latte. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, okay, but most of the time when you and I get coffee, it's summertime. Yeah. It's like 104 okay. degrees outside in the afternoon, That's and true. I. You know, hot coffee is kind of hot. Yeah. If if, if uh, this week you stop at Starbucks or if you have free time, I'll 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 uh, <laughs> buy you a pumpkin cold brew. I'll meet you at Starbucks. Yeah. Buy oh me a cold God. brew. Let's do it. Can y'all okay, can y'all record I'll, yourselves I'll trying calendar. them so I can post it on Instagram? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will definitely take a picture. Yeah, yeah for sure. No, yeah. a video. A video. We can do, we can do like a aesthetic <laughs> TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Well, I feel like uh, people are gonna be expecting this now. So yeah. Oh, they will. I'll post it, people. <laughs> okay, I'll look at my calendar after we're done. Yeah, here. we got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll enjoy a pumpkin cream cold brew. We will Facetime you. Okay. We can Facetime each other. Let me know when you're going, and I'll <laughs> yeah. also get one. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I don't know how to connect this to wisdom traditions, but yeah, I was, I was searching for a segue. Maybe. Uh, this tradition of pumpkin, uh, what is it? Pumpkin spice lattes. That's a American tradition now. You know, I think this is a American tradition dating back to 2008. I don't know, whenever. But in philosophy, 
or uh, in religious traditions across the world, we have these things called wisdom traditions, uh, which is similar to the pumpkin cold brew because they date back in time and they're cultural and uh, they they ground the culture in some kind of um, in some kind of meaning. You know, when the season comes up for a pumpkin cold brew, uh, we rely on that. We know it's fall, not when the weather changes, but when Starbucks releases its uh, line. And so that tells it's us lying. that tells us something. <laughs> That tells us something about the world, you know, and I think uh, wisdom traditions can can do the same thing in a much broader sense. I think it's that was quite the segue. That was a good segue that you talked about how pumpkin spice is part of our culture, and I would agree. I think, I think so. people have been saying, or like girls that are my age, like in the summer of the Barbie movie and Taylor Swift, and like things that have become hallmarks of girlhood as it's been coined and like pumpkin spice is one of those things that's like a hallmark of girl culture that we're all on the day pumpkin spice releases everyone goes on the day the barbie movie comes out we all go when taylor swift comes to theaters we all go on october 13th yes (laughs) what stream 1989 taylor's version october 27th oh my god but Uh. it is very cultural now at least i would say yeah, some people treat that pumpkin spice latte like it's holy. Mm, they sure do. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, what's well, a great segue, Andrew? I'll play music just to be official. Can you play some uh, fall music? Oh, now you've challenged me. So in a previous episode, we were talking about Taoism, and then that episode got way off track, and it was great. It was an awesome conversation. Uh, lots of people was, uh, you know, responded to that. So anyway, we we're talking about Taoism, and uh, a couple of times we referenced it, and I can't remember which of us specifically. I know I did at least once. Uh, we called it a wisdom tradition. And in fact, in the introduction, I said, today, it, Taoism, is considered one of the world's great wisdom traditions. So we had a listener contact us, Marie, and asked exactly, what is a wisdom tradition? What exactly is a wisdom tradition? So it seems that uh, in that episode, we did kind of identify Taoism a little separately or differently than, than philosophy, and that's kind of where the conversation went in that episode. So we thought we'd revisit this and really dig into exactly what is a wisdom tradition, if it's even a thing. Um, But if it is a thing, how do we define it? What are its parameters? And is it different than philosophy? And all those types of topics. So I figure the first thing we should probably do, guys, is define what is a wisdom tradition. So what is that? What do you think? Because here's the deal. I think that word gets thrown around pretty loosely. And I'll raise my hand first and be the first to admit that uh, I'm guilty of that as well. So now I'm just like, well, okay, well, what what is it when I'm saying that about a certain ideology? I think this is a difficult question because of this wisdom word in front of it. I don't know if there's another kind of, there has, there's some other term that I've heard this, you know, it's a synonym to wisdom tradition that I've been kind of thinking, trying to figure out what it is. When I think about wisdom traditions, uh, I think of ways of making sense of the world, usually cultural, 
that depend upon stories or some kind of methods of, you know, whatever method that they're using to pass down these ideas about the world, uh, to make sense of it that are passed down in references, it's past. I, I just want to put an asterisk by the passed down in references that past belief in order to build upon things that are going on now or events that are happening or anything like that. I, I want to put an asterisk by that for later. I think Andrew makes a good point and that also makes me wonder where wisdom traditions fit in relation to philosophy and religion because I guess in my head I kind of put philosophy as this big umbrella where like a bunch of things can fit in it and had slotted wisdom traditions as like a bubble under the philosophy umbrella but now it kind of makes me wonder if it's more of like philosophy like a venn diagram of like philosophy it's is its own thing and religion is its own thing and wisdom traditions are their own things but they can overlap and intersect i don't know yeah, and that's interesting. I know we've talked about it before on our on our show, the difference between Eastern and Western, that very broad dichotomy we talk about, uh, where in the West we separate spirituality and religion from philosophy. I mean, we talk about it philosophically and philosophy of religion in that area, but uh, whereas in the East, uh, spirituality, religion, and philosophy are, are all smushed together. And, and that may be that may be one of the big differences uh, that we're talking about, especially from your example. So I think one of the interesting things we could do here with trying to define this, because in my research of this term, eh, it's really hard to find a definition that everyone kind of universally points towards. A lot of words are that way, but this one in particular seemed really difficult to find. There is not an entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy for it, yet obviously it's, it's a term that's that's used fairly widely. So in breaking it down, we think, so we have two words, wisdom and tradition. So philosophy itself, the Greek is love of wisdom. Wisdom, what is, what is wisdom in this particular case? Is it, is when we say wisdom tradition, is that different from this type of wisdom we're talking about when we talk about philosophy, the love of wisdom? Yeah. I think that it's this is this is why I was having a little trouble earlier and wanted to put an asterisk by it for the Greek. The problem that I think we're going to run into with using a Greek understanding of wisdom is the uh, the Greek understand and okay. Let's let's just go through this first part and then I'll give a little asterisk to it too. Is that the Greek understanding of wisdom depends upon the logos and the reason okay and kind of logic too and i think logic emerges from from logos which it does and wisdom for the greeks uh, we'll talk about this but it's a kind of virtue but it's also this is the kicker it's also given it's given to people the logos the the fat the how we can come to earn wisdom or cultivate wisdom or whatever, that is given to us by nature or by God. And so, because we have this kind of 
formative and f- fundamental understanding of where or how we can collect wisdom or garner it through a spirit. Like for Socrates, he thinks that there's a daemon uh, who gives him this wisdom. I think that that fact is going to be different in different wisdom traditions. And so I'm a little skeptical of using uh, a Greek under Greek foundation for wisdom as our place to start. But I'm curious to hear what y'all think about this. Could, would you define logos real quick? Yeah, logos, it's a complicated word. It has, yeah, it's difficult to bring over a direct uh, one word formulation of it. It can be reason, it can be logic, it can be a word. It can be a lot of things, but I think for the purposes of this, we can just think about it as reason. And you think that because Socrates believed that wisdom was passed to him by his daimon is why we should be skeptical of the Greek conception? Yeah, I think that the fact that how we get wisdom and how we are able to get wisdom. So Socrates probably doesn't think that it's just from like his... Um, spirit or whatever who's telling him not to do things or is silent it's that we we have the ability to reason and from that ability to reason we can form wisdom and i'm not sure that other traditions or other cultures have the same understanding of how wisdom is cultivated and so that's why i'm i'm i think that this is important like we should come to kind of are we going to take this greek understanding of of wisdom on that has some kind of foundation and reason or some kind of gift given. I don't know enough about other traditions, but I just wanted to flag that before we jump into it, that this kind of presets the uh, wisdom. Well, then what is a more standard sort of definition of wisdom? When we identify someone who's wise, that means they must have wisdom. We have sayings like wisdom is hard won, just in regular usage of the word, what do we mean when we say, oh, yeah, I'd like to know your wisdom on this um, or something like that? What what do we mean when we say wisdom? Because I feel like the term wisdom tradition is one of those terms that we are throwing around without giving a great deal of thought. So, so, so let me say, let me do this. So when I was looking up wisdom, wisdom traditions, I was surprised by some of what different websites identified as examples. So ancient examples, we got everything from Buddhism to Taoism, which is Eastern, to Stoicism and like Renaissance humanism uh, or modern day humanism. That's Eastern sort of Western stuff. As far as examples from the United States, the transcendentalist movement of the early 19th century, Quakerism, also from the same time period, Native American. And then we get into some indigenous stuff, right? Like so Native American or other indigenous populations, and uh, or African-American spiritual traditions that began in, in the United States during uh, slavery period. And then everything from indigenous tribes uh, in South Africa, South America, they all get kind of lumped into this wisdom tradition thing. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I feel like, you know, when we're, you know, so, some people will call like what a Native American, like I mentioned the Shawnee at the beginning of the, of the episode, a uh, Native American tribe, they call that an, an, indig- an indigenous knowledge system. You know, is that the same thing as a wisdom tradition? So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling now, but that's what I think of when like, well, so, so what do we mean when we say wisdom? You know, I'd like to seek your wisdom on this problem. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just say, uh, 
I'd like to know what you think about this problem. Let me ask a clarifying question real quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this, this, is, this will relate back to my initial point. When we're thinking about these wisdom traditions, I think that there's a, a division somewhere there between like how these cultures think about why they exist in the world or their religion. Mm-hmm. And a division of that, and then on the other side is like, and they can be connected too, and I think they are, but how should we act in the world? How should we respond to problems? Mm-hmm. In your example that you gave, like, can I have your wisdom on this problem? How should I act? Like, those are actions. Those are mm-hmm. different from why do I exist in the world? Does that make sense? How I should act versus purpose? Yes. And so I'm, I'm curious, are we drawing, and sometimes they'll connect, uh, but are we drawing the line for this episode today between this action and this more metaf- these more metaphysical claims about, um, mm-hmm. you know, why do we exist in the world? How was the earth formed? Because mm-hmm. there's a division of that in Greek philosophy, too. Mm-hmm. There's a Sophia, which is this wisdom yeah. word, and then there's phronesis, which is wisdom, but it's practical wisdom. Right. That's what the Stoics identified mm-hmm. as a virtue. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to, to hear what y'all think. It does seem, at least to me, that that's a a core difference in what I consider a wisdom tradition versus philosophy. But there also is overlap. Like, Plato talks about human purpose, but also in some ways what humans ought to do is to act justly or organize a right government. So I think that as long as we acknowledge that there is overlap, I think it's a good place to start. But as I don't remember if it was Parsons or Andrew that was listing off the places that we consider their um, philosophies or like thoughts to be wisdom traditions versus philosophy, is it also a way for the Western world to separate their use of reason in what could be considered a wisdom tradition from everybody else, that the West has this title of philosophy and we don't consider much else philosophy, and we call it a wisdom tradition? Like, is there, I don't know, some sense of pride in having a philosophy of the West versus wisdom traditions of the East and, like, the old world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where some people get off saying that it's it's pejorative. Um, In other words, it's lesser than philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you get into, I mean, depending on the philosophers you're talking to, some philosophers mm-hmm. will say that how Eastern philosophy is viewed as just outright racist and the superiority of, mm. of Western philosophy and, and rationalism over uh, other, other ways mm-hmm. of knowing. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's a good point. I think that's a valid point. But at the end of the day, too, you subscribe to a wisdom tradition if we want to be broad or a philosophy for a reason. You think it's correct. You think it's true. Mm-hmm. And so if we're... if and this might just be because we're in the West, but if the reason part is the separation, like we buy into that and we think it's true and we do think in, we do think it's superior, right? We think that that is, mm-hmm. we think it's better. And that's why we're choosing to live our life by it too. Mm-hmm. And someone in an Eastern tradition who holds, you know, Buddhism or Taoism or whatever, I don't fault them for thinking that that is a superior wisdom tradition. They can think that, and, and, and the, the fact that they subscribe to it should mean that, right? 
Like, uh, mm-hmm. and so, um, there's definitely some, some difference, uh, but I think as long as we approach this topic with respect and I think that we can both investigate this question and also hold that one of these is true at the end of the day, but I don't know. Maybe that that itself might just be a a Western philosophical <laughs> answer to this question, mm-hmm. and I'm fine accepting that. I'm fine accepting that. That's really interesting. Uh, so, when I was thinking about this earlier today, I'd been thinking about it for more than a week. But when I, I was thinking about it today, a couple hours before the episode, I was like, okay, wait a minute. We've done a number of episodes where we have identified certain schools of thought as a philosophy of mm-hmm. life. Yep. We have. And I think I got that from, cause I started mm-hmm. looking through my shelf. I think the first time I really kind of ran into that phrase, just for me, myself, of course it's been around for much longer. I'm sure was the book, uh, how to live a good life by Massimo Piglucci, sky clear and Daniel Kaufman. And mm-hmm. it's just a collection of everything from Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, to Aristotelianism and Stoicism and all the religions, Hinduism, Christianity, and, and even modern philosophies like existentialism or pragmatism. Uh, these are all what they call philosophies of life. And I was like, well, is that just what a wisdom tradition is? So, so here, in the, here in the introduction, they do point out, they say, uh, everyone has a philosophy of life that you subscribe to. And, and Andrew, what you said made me think, made me think of that. It said, so a philosophy of life is a framework that is made at minimum of a metaphysics, which is an account of how the world works, and an ethics, set of principles or guidelines to deploy when interacting with others. That's a philosophy of life at minimum. And I'm like, okay, well, mm-hmm. how different is that from a wisdom tradition, if there is any difference in that? I don't know. What do you think? Are we, are we, just, using the, are we just using a different word for the same thing? Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead. I think... Yeah. If I were to draw a difference between a wisdom tradition and a philosophy of life, I would pull from the tradition part Mm -hmm. that it seems like there are overlap. Like wisdom traditions can also count as philosophies of Mm -hmm. life or like be considered philosophies of life. But the tradition part is what matters because they're more cultural, like a culture centered around Taoism or Buddhism or Hinduism. A lot of those Eastern wisdom Mm -hmm. traditions Whereas, like, existentialism doesn't so much demand the formulation of a culture. Whereas if you're going to practice Buddhism, it dictates how you act as an individual and in a society. And then, like, societies are formed around that. Whereas you don't see existentialist societies. People kind of live by those principles, but not so much form a whole life around them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, and I also think, Taylor, I have similar intuitions as you in the sense, well, uh, on the one hand, I want to differentiate, like, I kind of want to bucket religions from from wisdom traditions for a second, mm-hmm. uh, and, and where we think, like, uh, Buddhism is a religion, and I'll keep Taoism in the other one mm-hmm. where I won't consider it a religion, but we'll talk about that in a second, I'm sure. Just thinking about philosophy as a, as a in some sense, philosophy is a tradition because we retain a literature and we will read it in, in a way. But in, a, in another sense, too, philosophy never depends upon what a past person has said, I think. I think it rarely builds upon mm. 
in in cases it does, but it rarely for a long time builds upon what someone said as a truth. And what I mean by that is like, Mm. you know, in Nietzsche, for instance, we see a clear rejection of Plato. We don't see like somebody saying, okay, Plato says philosophy is wisdom. This is true. They might say it's true because the, the logicity of it makes sense and it's logical and so forth and we can build upon that logic. But we don't say Socrates is correct, he is Socrates and move on from that point. We don't build upon uh, that, we build upon, I think, logic more. And so maybe logic is the center of the tradition, but it's not a story or it's not really an idea and it's not a person or stories that we're building upon. It's uh, it's really not. So are wisdom traditions, in your perspective, Andrew, something that does exclusively use stories in oral tradition, teachings, practices are being passed down? I don't know if it's uh, it's always going to be that case. I'm I'm not familiar, uh, but I know in in some wisdom traditions there are uh, uses of stories and um, such mediums oh, to absolutely. pass things along. I don't um, know if it's exclusive to that, but uh, I I mean I know that's true. Like with Taoism, I'm not sure that I don't think are there stories that are passed down along with Taoism. Oh. I mean, I'm sure in its formation. So, so whether it's Taoism, I'm actually have been thinking the last minute or two about Judaism. Mm. Um, before there was any sort of codification of law, before there were uh, tablets written down, you had stories. You had stories that were passed along from person to person, tribe to tribe, when you got the 12 tribes of Judea. This is before the tabernacle and all of that, um, before we had priests and laws and, and all of that business. The stories of Abram and the stories of Isaac and and Joseph and all of it that leads towards the story of Egypt and then the liberation from Egypt, et cetera, et cetera. None of that was written down at that point, as far as we know. The first five books of the Bible or the Torah, as best we know, was authored by Moses. And if that's true, then those books were written post-Egypt. And so, uh, and I mean, on. Gosh, I, I think many religions started out as, as exactly what we're talking about. You know, it's a body of knowledge, it's certain teachings, it's practices. They have stories that go along with it that we tell from one generation to the next. And for lack of a better term, it keeps the faith alive. And it's that, that's how this transmission of knowledge occurs from teacher to student. And so it keeps alive those uh, spiritual practices and cultural beliefs that are associated with it. And really, too, that's the that's kind of the whole point of the church, too, for Christianity. Like, it wasn't until 393 and the Council of Hippo well, that's true. Uh, before yeah. the Bible was made, you know? So Yeah, we just had a couple letters yeah, passing around. Yeah. And if, if that. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that there's, I think stories and teachings, they're, they're often passed down orally. I'm interested in tradition, too, Andrew, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick on you because you're Catholic. Uh, Catholicism is, is global. It's in North America, South America, Africa, Asia. And, of course, Christianity, as with many religions, has a great deal of traditions, and especially Catholicism has a great deal of traditions, symbols, practices, etc. Those, I'm going to assume, I think I'm right, those differ from region to region. South America... Africa, etc. Yep. So, regarding tradition, how do you view that as a Catholic? 
there's got to be certain traditions that that must be kept, I suppose, or there can be some flexibility in those traditions. I don't know. I'm, because I, I think earlier we were talking about, maybe it was Taylor, we were talking about traditions as, as cultural. And so I'm wondering, is can traditions transcend culture? I guess that's where I'm going at with this with this mm. Catholic question. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, tradition is, uh, I mean, that's like the foundational thing of, of a Catholic church, right? Like, we think that since we assembled the Bible from zero to 400 or from 50 to 400, Christianity is more than just a book. It's a tradition passed down along. And uh, we do see differences in I'm thinking, and this is kind of the big one now, I think, that there's a big difference between Eastern Catholic churches called Byzantine churches, uh, and there's differences Mm -hmm. in Latin churches, and then there's this new one called the Ordinariate Church, which is an Anglican rite that's been assembled into the Catholic Church, which uses a different liturgy. And Mm. so, yeah, it's super interesting. And so, these are all different traditions. They have differences, but at the core of it, they will retain like a fundamental central practice that ties it all together. Uh, they all, they all like the the big one is they all in their liturgies pray for the Pope. That is the tradition mm. that unifies the Catholic Church. It, they also retain the uh, tradition of the Last Supper in every single Mass throughout the world. That tradition is the same. They believe that uh, they reenact the Last Supper the central part of the institution of the Eucharist. Um, And so, while different churches have different uh, aspects, they use different language, of course. Uh, The priests can wear different types of robes. Uh, The bread is made differently, right? The the Eucharist is made differently. Sometimes it's leavened and sometimes it's unleavened. In different places, priests can be married versus not be married. Sometimes priests have to wear beards and none, but there's a central unifying tradition between all of those. Mm. I think another really good example is Buddhism too, mm-hmm. right? In, in some types of Buddhism, it's it's more extreme where uh, they'll not even believe the Buddha's a god. Some will. Some believe that there's evil spirits in Buddhism and good spirits that prowl throughout the world. Some believe that it's just yourself uh, and that it's selves. And I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with really what orients those. I'm guessing it's the uh, noble truths and the eightfold paths and things of that nature. Actually, I remember when we were doing the uh, Eastern philosophy series, when I was researching Buddhism, uh, I think it was Garfield, I can't remember his first name, Garfield said that the, the one thing that all Buddhists agree upon is the four noble truths and the eightfold path. I remember you saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Past that, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wild, isn't it? That's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some unifying thing in the traditions. And even considering secular Buddhism in the United States. Yeah. 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 And they, they all fold, <laughs> you know, the Four Noble Truths, the eight, Eightfold Path have nothing to do with uh, beliefs and spirits and gods and no. afterlives and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Very interesting. Interesting. I wonder, too, and I think this this kind of stems from the stories discussion we were having, is that why do you think that someone in a way later time down the road believed the authenticity of a story or oral tradition that 
originated generations or even centuries before? Why do they believe mm-hmm. that is true and hold on to that belief? I can't really think of a good example off the top of my head, but I mean, even for things that are not written down, what do y'all think about that? Do you think that's wise to believe? Well, if I'm going to be just super expansive, I'm going to say that's no different than the beliefs that we hold in the West, especially philosophical beliefs. So let's let's talk about stories, right? So stories in indigenous tribes, like the one I began with, those stories typically pass along a an ethical or, or moral that goes along with it. Do Shawnee people these days really believe that buffaloes and crows are talking to each other and, and talking to humans? I don't know, but the story is important. Not because of like, is it real? But the story is important because of what it teaches. It's the moral, right? Or the virtue, if we're going to use Western language. You can do the same. You can talk about the same with the parables of Christ. He told all kinds of stories. Mustard seeds and mountains and all kinds of things. Those aren't real. But that's not important. It's the moral that goes along with it, the ethic. And it's instructive. It's a teaching tool. That's the way I see it. Whether it's, it's believed that it's true or not. I guess the truer it is, maybe the more powerful it is, but uh, I mean, that's all stories are. Well, I think you're right to identify that there's some kind of teaching tool through stories. And I, I mean, there, that's no different from literature today, really. Right, but, sure. Or heck, Plato. Should have picked on Plato. Yeah. Bunch of people sitting in a cave. Hey. <laughs> yeah, it's, those, are, those are just stories. But I think that at points, I mean, some people definitely would believe. I mean, we can take the... I mean, I don't... I, I want to stick to our differentiation between ethics and uh, against the kind of world worldview or world building or whatever. But they, they are kind of linked, as you were saying that book by Piglucci where he said uh, wisdom, uh, philosophy of life has to have a meta, meta ethic or metaphysics, but also have an ethics. Like, so they're, they're connected, but we can think about people even like the world was literally created in seven days. Yeah. Yeah. We can, I'm sure we can think of other traditions who think these things, but then there's also traditions who, who think through their stories or the traditions or whatever. The reason that we should do, X or Y or Z is because of some story that's passed down. I don't know. And I forgot where I was going with this. But I mean, is there some difference between the the story that teaches us and the story that is institutes a practice? Does that make sense? So maybe the the right the question to ask for that question, the question to ask of the question is maybe the importance is how that knowledge is originated. And maybe then we get into like methodology. Yeah. For me, when I think of wise people, people who have wisdom, I do fall in that camp that thinks wisdom is hard won. The harder your life is, the clearer your perspective on things is going to be. And the longer you've lived, the more you've experienced, the more life you've experienced, the more death you've experienced, the more terrible tragedies you've experienced, the the more joy you've experienced. And all of that builds into something that a type of knowledge that we call, or rather that I'm saying, that I call wisdom. And so, you know, if we're talking about indigenous stories and their their validity in terms of their truth or not, when it comes to the teaching, 
that comes along with the story, then I'm thinking, well, okay, well, how was that orig- how was that moral originated? How did we arrive at this moral that the story tells? The moral's kind of separate from the story. I mean, it's in the story, and it's the point of the story, but you can convey the same moral with a different story. And and I got off track. <laughs> I don't, oh. Well, because you were comparing it, Andrew, to uh, to stories and um, I guess like reasoned out philosophy or something. No, I mean you're you're on the right. I think it's on the right track. Andrew brought up like what's the difference between a story that institutes mm. like a practice versus a belief, and in the class that I TA for, they're talking about um, the Bible right now and the covenant that God makes with Abraham when he brings Isaac up to the mountain and it's a proof of his faith that he would sacrifice his son and God says that he will provide for Abraham and he'll make a great nation and then 400 years later the Israelite people are enslaved but they still have faith in the covenant that God had produced so that story of Abraham and Isaac like made them more faithful or gave them hope. But I think those same stories also instituted practices. So I don't know where we would draw the line in that between a story that institutes a belief versus a practice. This is, I think, a good point that Taylor brings up. I think there is an important difference between for Jews who, I don't know how to say this, for Jews who believe that this covenant was instituted for them that's not like some fanciful story that just tells some kind of idea that is something they believe actually took place for a christian who believes that uh, jesus spoke about the you know when he was feeding the four thousand or whatever and telling telling his parable Mm -hmm. that's not something that we think is a metaphorical truth or just a fun story that tells us something we buy into that that that's a real idea. And I think this is, this is where my point is going. For these traditions who don't believe that the buffalo talked to the crows, but they think there's a cool idea there, I think there's some, there's some difference, but I'm not able to put my finger on it, uh, than mm. a group of people who buy a story, who believe in its true validity, who are not, mm-hmm. who are maybe also reading into it metaphorically, but who believe the event. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. Yes. That there's a difference between something like a parable that you don't believe to be a historical truth versus something you believe is a historical truth with religious significance. Yes. All right. So I'm going to bring in some science here. I've been reading Midgley lately. <laughs> she's rails against scientism or what she calls scientism. <laughs> and, she's, uh, and, and the Enlightenment. She says, we've given all power to to the science these days in terms of an explanation of what knowledge is about the world and all other forms yeah. of knowledge are considered second class. So let me approach this, this story business from that perspective. So the three of us and everyone who's listening, uh, we have no choice in it. It's the culture we live in. Science has been dominant for the last 100, 150 years. It has supplanted in a lot of ways traditional religious uh, beliefs and systems. And many other many other aspects of of our culture as well. Maybe even social contract theory. I don't know. So let's let's think about these stories. Okay. So the Shawnee have a story. 
You know, when I pulled that story, I had no idea we'd be talking about it that much. Okay, so the Shawnee have this story about a, a crow and a buffalo, you know, and they're talking to people and they're talking to buffaloes. Well, in our scientific 21st century selves, we're like, yeah, but uh, crows and buffalo don't talk to each other or they don't talk to humans also. We're just like, that's just, that's just not something that happens, right? And no one takes that seriously. Well, we can flip that right around and do the same to any story about Christianity, and Jesus and feeding 4,000 people with two loaves of bread and a fish or whatever, like in our scientific 21st century mindset, like, yeah, that also didn't happen. Probably didn't happen. Or we look at the origin stories in the Bible in Genesis about the creation of the earth and Garden of Eden and all that sort of business. And we're like, yeah, I'm not talking snakes. Snakes don't talk. You know, and so, so then we start talking about metaphor and stuff like that. We can only approach these stories from this particular perspective, this lens of looking at it through a scientific lens. And I don't know if that has anything to do with what we're talking about, but I guess if we're talking about like maybe validity of stories and instilling beliefs and all that sort of stuff, then I mean, it's very true. Our world is far less mystical than it used to be. And when I say mystical, I don't mean not true or magical or something. It's just less spiritual. We've atomized everything. Uh, and reduced everything to chemicals in our brains and atoms and all of that sort of good stuff uh, for explanations of why our world is the way it is, including humans. So when I think of maybe these stories that we're talking about, of course they seem really uh, ridiculous to us, but perhaps not to others. Mm -hmm. I agree. I have two things this has reminded me of actually from class this week. We were talking about Descartes in my early modern class, and my professor said mm -hmm. that we live so deeply in Descartes' world of science and post-scientific revolution mm -hmm. that we can't even see that we live in this world. And we can't conceive of a world where science and mathematics are not defining every aspect of our reality. And then in my classic philosophy class, we were talking about um, pre-Socratic conceptions of the world with the Milesian material monists. So Thales, mm -hmm. Anaximander, mm -hmm. and Anaximenides, I believe. And Nietzsche wrote that Thales' conception that the world begins with mm -hmm. water sounds ridiculous. And we were talking about how you can only know what you can know. And if you're in Greece and your whole world is defined by water, you're on an island, and water dictates everything. Of mm. course you're going to believe that the world started with water. So, like you were saying, Mr. Parsons, if you can, you're sitting here in your 21st century reality, everything's defined by science, it's not mystical, it's just chemistry, then you're not going to be maybe as willing to believe these stories that, whether they happened or not, may not matter, but then you kind of can miss the mm -hmm. metaphysic of it, the truth in them. Just makes me think about like how we've scienced our way out of sometimes oh, yeah. the humanity and like the magic of life yeah. because we want to just break it down. No, that's a great point. Understand it. Let me s let know. me say this though. I don't know how to say this. Just because we live in a scientific world now, in mathematics and science are like our ways of knowing the world. And just because like in the past, the way that people understood the world was wrong doesn't discredit science and math. 
I mean, there are things that we still don't know about the world, and I'm sure will be disproven in, in hundreds of years. But there's also things that we can know through science and that we can know pretty well, and through math too. And they do, and that does remove the magic and the beauty of of not knowing. And you know, it might have been sweet to know that or think that we were all made out of fire and and born of clay, <laughs> and that that would have been good and and cool. But that's no different from philosophy, too, and the ethical principles that we hold, right? We believe things now that in the past, I mean, about just about like ethical systems. And, and I don't know, I mean, atheists would probably think this about God. Like we, we believe, I mean, this is what Nietzsche believed about God, right? Like these are cool ideas and they were important for us. They gave us like a good, good way of existing in the world. But we don't think that they're true anymore, and we can't live. We can't live by them because they're not true, and that sucks. But that's just how it is if we're going to agree to live as, as truth. I think that it's. I think we should talk about this, and I think this is this would be really cool to talk about. Like, what are you, what do y'all think about science as a wisdom tradition itself? Oh, I have fairly strong views on that. Uh, it is. It's totally a wisdom tradition. It has its own beliefs and its own particular metaphysical explanation of everything. I don't know that it has a moral or an ethic, but it's certainly a, a way to view the world that rejects other ways of knowing the world. And so when I say that, like, science is going to be interested in the numbers and the data rather than the experience. It's going to be, in, it's going to be interested in hard facts rather than quality. So uh, science has done a great deal of good for our civilization. Oh my gosh. Like, thank you, science. You know, uh, I'm probably still living because of science. Most of people listening might not have lived past the age of five. Thank you, science. It's built amazing things for us, roads and bridges, and we can get across this world. I and mean, it's done fantastic things, but at the cost of something else, I think. And it's, that's why people will talk about like the tragedy of the enlightenment project. I mean, it gave us things like rights, but it also atomized human beings into individuals rather than collective societies. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just rambling about science. Science is great. Don't get me wrong. There's a whole other field of experience out there, many fields of experience out there that, that science can't tap into. Science is very good at telling us how things work. Science is not good at telling us why things work the way they do. They tell us how they work, but not why. Well, can I push back real quick? Mm -hmm. And then Taylor, I'm sure you'll push back against me, so it's going to work out. But we're thinking, I mean, we were thinking earlier of wisdom traditions were things that tell us how we should act in the world. And I'm not sure if science does that. I think science does, if we, if we made this distinction, which I think we, we have done, uh, that a wisdom tradition tells us or a philosophy of life or whatever tell, gives us both a metaphysics, tells us how the world is, mm -hmm. and a metaethics, how we should live. I think science does the left part of that box really well. And by left box, I mean tells us what the world is like mm -hmm. and how it is and whatever. But it doesn't tell us how we should live. At least I don't, I mean, I haven't found a good, and I think that's what you're fed up with, Mr. Parsons, yeah. that it doesn't, and it, and it kind of acts like it does. I think we turn towards science as a thing that's all-encompassing, and I think that's what you mean, and, and, and that is very frustrating, because people do accept science as something that it's not, 
It's not fitting in that right half of that box of telling us how to live. But if we're thinking about the West as a wisdom tradition, and we think that philosophy fills in that right half of that box, and science fills in the left half of that box, I think that's very compelling. Because mm, the philosophy that we practice in the West is very mathematical. It's very logical compared to others. And this is something I think that you've been frustrated with Western philosophy, is that it does a really good job about telling us how we should live in the world, but it doesn't, really t- it do- it doesn't give us this really beautiful creation story, apart from religion and things of that nature, mm. uh, where science might give us that. So I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts. Are you saying that science and philosophy, like in the Western conception, make a wisdom tradition taken together? I think taken together, they both, they definitely could. I think separated, Hmm. at least from religion. Okay, I'm going to preface this with religion. Mm -hmm. I think separated Western philosophy and Western science do not give us a wisdom tradition as they are post-enlightenment philosophy. Yeah, I like that idea. That makes sense. It covers an awful lot of people, and it does transcend culture to a degree. Back to science and ethics. Okay, so I, I'm talking out of turn here because I don't know that much about the movement. Andrew probably knows more. The logical positivists. So I feel like the logical positivists are the closest thing that science came to in constructing a type of ethic. Yep, yep. I don't know. Can you say something about that, Andrew? Well, I think it was even more encompassing than just an ethic. Like, the, there, it was an epistemology and an ethic. If, if you couldn't know 100% certainty about a thing, then it has to be excluded, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that encompasses more. But I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct that uh, I think your claim about logical positivism being very close and scientific thing I mean, that's what they wanted. Yeah, it's science of language that's, and meaning, yeah. Yes. And we just see this crumble and fail. We see it fail pretty pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Wittgenstein uh, rejects it. We, can, we talked about this in our Russell episode. He wrote a 393-page proof of why 1 plus 1 equals 2 in an aim to prove that math can just stand on itself by itself, and it fails there's always some assumption that needs to be made about the world that math and science just can't give you. Yeah. Even AJ Iark um, uh, walked back on, on all of that as well. Yep. Yep. And yeah. science right now, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, I'm stealing a lot of airtime here, but science now, I mean, there's this, there's this guy at Rice who's very controversial, but, and I tend to kind of blot out this controversy because I'm, I believe in evolution and this guy, I'm not sure if he does, but he's the, He's really famous on YouTube right now because he believe, he's the leading scientist in the world for organic chemistry and for a lot of things. And he's a Christian, and he points out that as much as science has ever given us, it still has not told us how a cell is created. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's bad language. How a cell comes to exist from nothing. Mm-hmm. It's called abiogenesis. Uh, and, and I think, so that's at least interesting that scientists themselves are like saying, okay, there's this buffer between science and creation uh, that is, that's difficult for us to, to realize. And, and I don't know, I don't even know how I got to that point, but. 
Well, we're far afield at this point. Uh, would we say, so back to wisdom traditions, would we say that wisdom traditions lack a scientific explanation of things? And if so, then what's the implications of that? Because if we're saying science is a type of, of a way of knowing, then there's got to be other ways of knowing, I suppose. I mean, I think there are. So does that delegitimize? Is there any value in wisdom traditions? Uh, I will say no. So this will be good. Okay. What do you think, Parsons? Oh, I think absolutely. Yes, I do think there's value in wisdom traditions. I think there's a lot of ways you can come at it. I think they're valuable in the sense that they tell you things about a culture that science can't tell you because they give you an inside look. And as much as you can, it allows you to see the world through their eyes. Like if you study Taoism, you can and kind of immerse yourself and try to like relinquish your own perspective as much as you can, because you can't. But you can see the world almost through a Taoist lens. But I think they also have good wisdom in that a lot of times they're based on nature and the observation of the way that the natural order of things work. And I go back to Taoism because that's what I'm most familiar with, but to be like water, to flow and to go around obstacles and to go to the low places to help where help is needed. I think that all has value because it can allow you to kind of step outside yourself in a modern urban society and kind of try to get back to what nature may have intended you to be like. That's my thoughts on it. Well, let me just start off by saying uh, I, I really, really want to, um, and we, we can talk about this too, but I want to separate this religion from uh, wisdom traditions. I think that's important. And we can talk about that more in a mm -hmm. second. So I want to push the Buddhist religious tradition to the side and the Christian religious tradition, because I think all of these things can be read as we read Taoism. Uh, uh, an atheist can pick up the Bible and think it's a wisdom tradition because they don't subscribe to the religious beliefs behind it. And I, in, in that sense, I'd say Christianity and Buddhism, when read like that, are wisdom tradition. Uh, now, I'm kind of curious on your comment that wisdom traditions have no value. Okay, so if we think that our way of living in the world is true, then we think it's true. And we think that if we think that's true, then things that conflict with it are not true. We can think, and if we think that things are not true, then we should blot them out and we should not listen to them. And, and I can hear what you're saying, or maybe not listen to them is not the right way to say that, because uh, I, I think I can hear what, what you might say, and that's something like, okay, well, if you're not open to them, you know, whatever. But if we don't think something is true, it probably holds little, little to no value to us. It can supplement our understanding of things, and that's great, and that's fine, and that's dandy, but we can't think that, I mean, we can't think that something is true if we don't agree with the foundations, and this is what I was bringing up last week. Mm -hmm. I can't, I will never accept Taoism because I, I don't know where its foundation lies, and it's the same with other things. I can't, and I can't uh, subscribe to it because I can't trace its logicity. I can't trace the logic, and that's that's maybe my wisdom tradition uh, that I hold to. But I don't think it's a wisdom tradition, and, and we can talk about that in a second, too. But 
I think that the wisdom traditions can supplement our viewpoints on things, but they they'll they'll never I can't I can't say they're true or false, and because I can't do that, I can't think that they're important to me or that they provide value to me other than a supplemental kind of nature, like drinking a smoothie once a week or something. That's a controversial take. <laughs> so what are some things that you would say you do believe are true that has a foundation? Oh, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I think the thing I'm interested in is, is what counts as a foundation. Okay, go ahead. I think that a foundation can be traced back to something as simple as I have something where I can reason. From my reason, I can discern things about the world. Uh, in discerning things through the world, you can get a lot of things wrong. And so I think the best way to discern things about the world is through, probably through logic. And when we're looking at things like this Taoist tradition or traditions who tell us stories, I don't, one, really know where that foundation is. And two, I can't trace its how logical it is back because there's no point to uh, where I can trace, like this water flowing thing. Like, I don't know why I should believe that to be true. And so that's, that's where my problem lies. So where does experience fit in with all of this for you? What's, what's like an example? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking about this earlier. Well, okay. Empirical knowledge in the sense of if I like drop a ball a hundred times and it doesn't go up, I think I can like gain some logical or somewhat logical conclusion from that. This is what I'm thinking from experience. Like if I listen to a 99-year-old guy who tells me something, if what he says is logical, then I will stand behind it. But just because he has all of this experience and age and wisdom, that doesn't mean just from that that I should accept it, or at least I don't think so. I think even with experience, there has to be some um, consideration of, of that through logical means what do y'all think so i don't think that and i don't i don't suggest that you're saying this but i don't think experience and reason can be separated from each other i think that people who have lived lives and experienced things that we might consider at least eligible to be considered wisdom is based on their experience but not just the experience but the reasoning that goes along with that experience the observation that this particular way of being in the world, say, kind to others, is something that has resulted in good fruit. Uh, in other words, it has been beneficial for that person's life and for any other person's life who has decided that kindness is a good thing to do. You use your reason to deduce all that experience to form a conclusion that well, yes, that must be true. Will there be some examples where maybe being kind is not true? Sure, we can reason about those things. There are some scenarios under which being kind to another person would not be advisable. But then we're overthinking things. Well, overthinking is important. The thinking is important. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to get at is we can reach conclusions logically, rationally, based on a great deal of human experience and say, well, yes, this has worked out well for humans better than being this way. You know, if we're going to say being kind and generous has worked out better for humans than being selfish, then I think based on experience and reasoning through all of that, we can arrive at that particular conclusion. Let me, let me push 
forward to uh, counterexamples real quick. One, I think, will address this last thing. I think that that's right about experience and reason. I think that's very important for us to do. But it can also, I mean, if we depend too much upon experience, we're going to make wrong conclusions about the world. Let me give you an example that I've, I've been thinking of. Say, f- for the past 40 years, we're living in ancient Egypt. We have worshipped the sun god every day and begged him for rain. Every night it rains and uh, makes our Nile River very fertile and, and good. From that experience, it seems that I can reason that we should continue praying to the sun god in order for it to keep raining. And it would be silly for us not to. But if we separate the reasoning from that experience, and I think this is what happens really in science, is that we just kind of figure out that those things are not correlated, that they're not linked. And so it's kind of a waste of our time. Let me use that one first. And and the second was where I thought you were going with someone like who had a good experience, an individual who had an experience about the world and they had an experience, and from that they drew wisdom that they were sharing. I don't know what an example might be, but I'm thinking of like uh, a grandfather who says to their grandson, I shine this man's shoes every day for 40 years. He didn't give me a penny, but at the end of my life, he gave me a house. Or at the end of his life, he gave me his house. And so what this shows is that doing good deeds does not go unpunished. And that that's good, but what about the old man who says life sucks. You should never have, and nothing good comes from out of it. Uh, I've been kicked down every day of my life, and that's going to happen to you too. Uh, I mean, that's an example where uh, an experience that happens is bad, and, uh, and the reasoning from that seems kind of valid, but that's not a good way to live our life. What do you think about those? I think that you can consider in like the example of an older person giving advice, you can consider their advice without taking it at face value or first, like at the first time you hear it, believing it as truth. If someone says that like working in like doing X, Y, Z is futile, whether that is or not, you can still consider it and learn. Even if it's not applicable to your life, you can learn something about that person which I guess is maybe the way I see philosophy is in wisdom as you're learning about how somebody else sees the world. And that's what I think is one of the core values of philosophy is that you see through somebody else's eyes. So I think any way that allows you to see the world as somebody else does is inherently valuable, whether it's objectively true or not. I like that, Taylor. And in response to your examples, I would say, This is where discernment comes in, which is a type of reasoning. So say if I was a 12-year-old and I was listening to this man, he's telling me a story about how you do good good things and it pays off for you. He tells me a story about a guy who gave him a house when he died because he shined his shoes for 20 years. As a 12-year-old, that might make a great deal of impact on me. That might really resonate. I mean, it's just like, wow, okay, Mm -hmm. what a great lesson. But me, now at 50, I'd be immediately skeptical of that. And so, so it's discernment, right? which is a type of reasoning tool. Same with someone who says life is just crappy and awful, Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Yeah, okay. It is that way sometimes. But I can discern and know that that's not the way it is all the time. 
And, uh, and I have plenty of evidence to back that up based on my experience. But then again, if I were a cynical 13 year old wearing my Iron Maiden shirt uh, and down with the man and all that sort of stuff, I'd be like, yeah, life sucks. This all sucks. Screw everything and everybody. But I have no discernment tools at that point. Not good ones anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think that um, I can I, I can see what both of you are saying, and I think I think this goes into a difference of how we think about philosophy. Now that Taylor is saying about it, I do not think that philosophy is a way for us to see other people's point of view, and I don't think it's an inherently valuable tool to 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 see other people's point of view. I think it's a good that we can try to do that, but I think philosophy is job is figuring out what is true and false in the world or what is what is the best way to act Mm -hmm. and because of that i don't really care about uh you know uh what pol pot thought about uh you know his his laotian neighbors or how hitler thought about the uh, the lesser people in his society like i can think that that's cool and fine and dandy but like i don't think that's how i should I don't give much credence to how I think in a logical worldview, if we want to call it that, that that I don't think impacts me that much. I don't know. I can see why this division in our viewpoint of philosophy is causing this tension and this discussion. Well, I agree that philosophy's job is to identify truth uh, and things that are false. So really, we're talking about different ways of knowing that are used as tools in philosophy, and we're way too deep in this episode to start talking about what is yeah. philosophy uh, and what its methodology should be and what we should lend credence to and what we shouldn't. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't, a philosophy's job is to seek truth, yes. Well, you know, this just once again shows me these are big questions oh, yeah. and they're difficult questions. And I don't know how that makes me feel. Uh, <laughs> you should discern and uh, <laughs> try to figure it out. <laughs> it's just chemicals in your brain, Andrew. No, I don't believe that. But uh, I don't know why I don't believe that, you know. so. You know, it is interesting when we talk about truth. Um, I'll be honest, Andrew. Why, why wouldn't I be honest? I hate it when I say stuff like that. I'll be <laughs> honest. Um, <laughs> I'm always honest. Uh Man, I think truth's really hard to come by. Really, 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 really hard to come by. You do? And I think, and I, I tell students this in class when we're kicking this thing around at the beginning of the year, of like, what is philosophy? What's its job? Hey, yeah, it's seek truth. But man, truth is really hard to come by. So for me, I often think philosophy, its job is to get us closer to truth. You know, can, can we ever find that that magical truth with a capital T? Well, I don't know. Um, with some things, yeah, sure, maybe. Um, with others, not yet. But we can get closer to truth. I think that's a good point that you bring up. And, and I think that really people are probably so upset that I keep saying this logic word. But I think that is exactly the point of why, why I rely. And I think a lot of philosophers rely so heavily on logic because it's so closely tied with truth that we can prove. And maybe that's, it's, it's a comfortable position, too, because you say that truth is hard to come by. I think truth is easy to come by because of, because of logic stuff. Like I always think of, uh, is one an even or odd number? It's, it's an odd number, and uh, that's a truth. And is two even or odd? It's even, and that's always going to be a truth. And is three even or odd? It's odd, and that's always going to be a truth. 
And I love that. And I, that's what I like about logic. And I, I think that's why it's, it's, it's a tool that I lean heavily on. And, and maybe it's because without it, I don't know what truth would look like. But uh, this is sounds like stuff for a, another, another episode, episode. too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. I feel like we're at the end of this episode. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that wide-ranging discussion about, well, it started with wisdom traditions, uh, but some really important questions and uh, and distinctions that we've been thinking a lot about in terms of philosophy and its role and uh, what it should produce and how it should produce it. So anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know over on our Instagram at Open Door Philosophy or go visit us over on YouTube and leave a comment in the YouTube comment section because Andrew is good about checking all of those and subscribe on YouTube because we may be getting some video episodes up very soon. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds fantastic. And, and, uh, and my, my mood has been dampered because the Texans have lost, but big surprise there. Anyways. I mean, logic would tell you that that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Anyways, uh, make sure to uh, listen again next week or next episode, rather, for uh, an episode. You know, we'll be back. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thank you. See ya. Bye.